Welcome to the Monday Minute of the Hunt Backcountry podcast. Uh, if you're new to these, they are shorter, more informal episodes where we answer your listener questions. Steve, how are you doing this Monday morning? Uh, fantastic. Yeah, it's a, had a beautiful weekend in Boise weather-wise, finally. Like we've had, you know, kind of... <laughs> finally? Uh, we had a lot of snow and then, and, then, um, and then just like the weekend prior, a bunch of storms rolled through. Uh, but finally, this was just a gorgeous weekend. Took Got out, took the kids... Uh, fishing I had a little lake boat and trolling motor and went up and caught a bunch of fish wife got to do some paddle boarding you know it's kind of nice. mother's day yesterday I get up get up in the mountains get some of that mountain air and it was pretty spectacular frankly nice man we were just chatting before we hit record i'm coming out next week and we're gonna get up in the mountains and get some fresh mountain air and i am cannot wait i've been <laughs> juggling all kinds of stuff and just need that mental break and fresh air and get out in class and have some fun man yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to the trip. Yeah. Go kill a couple big old bears here and repeat last year. Except I don't, I don't want to kill them on the first day. Hopefully I was like going to say, three. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was literally thinking about that. Like, man, last year was too fast where my head's at this year. It's like, I want to soak this thing up. So, But hopefully, I mean, if we could find some bears and watch them for a couple days, so that'd be fun. Yeah. I'm all I was for thinking of doing, uh, like, sounds crazy, but adjusting how we hunt the country to kind of approach from a different angle to where we, we probably wouldn't get into bears for the it'd be a, a lot more glassing get up really high and then glass down mm -hmm. into these canyons uh so you you wouldn't even be able to kill anything until day two or three yeah because you'd have to make a longer approach yeah yeah awesome we'll hopefully have some stories to tell after that but uh again today the goal is to answer your listener questions before we dive into a question uh just had an email with some feedback which is always good uh, this one was just highlighting how much this guy enjoyed a particular episode. I'll go ahead and read it. But he was talking about episode number 396, which was called A Wild Winter Sheep Hunt. Uh, and WB wrote in and said, this was the best podcast I've heard like across all genres, the best in iTunes. And he said, thank you for just letting Nick share his story. What a great forum you have created. Thanks for what you guys are doing for the hunting community. I share that not to say like to share our own accolades because again, Nick was the one that told the story and it's a great hunt and it's all about him. But I always, uh, I like seeing when episodes get traction with listeners and we got numerous um, emails and comments on that podcast. And so just wanted to, for listeners who maybe didn't hear it, I encourage you guys to go back to episode 396. It was a cool story, a great hunt and one that you should check out if you missed it by some chance. That was the Canada guy. Yeah, the Alberta. Right? Yeah, I yeah, the Alberta, Alberta yeah. sheep hunt. But yep. what I remember about that episode was like you never know what somebody's difficult is, right? Difficult is, mm -hmm. is just purely up to the individual. Difficult could be, man, we hiked two miles in there and killed an elk, and it took us a whole day to pack it out. To this guy was, you know, like. Oh yeah, it's cold, you know, and then you kind of hear the temperature later on. Yeah, it was minus 10 degrees and we're backpacking and two feet of snow and, you know, rappelling down cliffs and stuff like that. Like it's a whole different level. And he was so nonchalant about it. Like that definitely uh, struck me as like, okay, yeah, this guy's, um, this legit. guy's tough. Yeah, it's legit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As I said, we had yeah. numerous guys reach out about that episode. And in fact, one of them is from, I don't know if he's from the area, but he has hunted that area. And I think he said he was actually in that real similar country at the same time and was talking about how cold and how tough it was. So 
Yeah, Nick, again, kudos. Thanks for sharing the story and good job, man. Uh, all right, a quick follow-up, Stephen. We've talked about this, but it is uh, a good question to answer. On episode 400, this guy wrote in and said, Steve talked about taking his peak refuel meals out of their packaging, putting them in Ziploc bags to save space. So my question is, when doing that, how do you cook them? It was mentioned to use boil-safe bags. So are, just, so are you just using the quart bag the same way you would the original peak packaging and eating directly out of that? Or are you doing something else? Steve, you have a cool little uh, technique, for lack of better terms, of actually how you eat out of the Ziploc. What is it? Yeah, so I do. I've done it for quite a few years and especially on a hunt where I know space is going to be premium right in the backpack. And like my sheep hunt last year, you know, we we're packing, planning on going in for 10 days, packing 10 days of food in the pack. I think I found out through swapping all the main bags out. It was something like 0. 0.8, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8 ounces per bag to go from the peak bag to just a, a quart size Ziploc bag. And you add that up over 10 10 meals, you know, it was like six ounces. It was fairly substantial amount of weight. So, and the weight savings is, is huge. You're getting rid of all that air pocket, the air that sits inside the peak bags, and then they just become way more manageable and packable. And then, yeah, I just grabbed the, they're, they are called, I think it's just the, the heavy kind of heavy duty freezer bags. And they should also say boil safe on them meaning that they're safe to be boiled. So what I do is just boil water in the jet boil. Um, I'll put uh, put the Ziploc bag just next to me on the ground. You know, I usually try to do something to support it, but I don't know if that's necessarily always the case. Like I'll put it in a kind of in a jacket or something like that to hold the sides in, pour the boiling, boiling water in there, and then I just take the bag and then drop it back into the jet boil. I seal up, you know, obviously seal it up and then put the lid on the jet boil and then that acts as an insulator to cook it. Right. So I'll, I'll put it in there and then just let it sit for its 20 minutes, whatever it takes. And then to eat it, I, I open up the Ziploc bag and I actually leave it inside my jet boil. And I just kind of roll the edges of the plastic bag up over the top of the, the edges of the jet boil cup and then just eat it from right out of there. And it works. It makes it really nice to, cause you're not trying to eat out of a bag at that point it's using the structure of the jet boil and it, it works really, really well. Maybe we'll shoot a video on it when we do our bear hunting. Yeah. We'll post it up. Yeah. Yeah, we could. I was, <laughs> I answered this guy like quickly in email and I was trying to phrase it without like, man, without a picture or something. And I basically told him, it's like, think of putting your Ziploc inside your jet boil and then folding it over when you're ready to eat. Just like you put a trash bag in a trash can, like that type <laughs> of thing, as you said, just yeah, the exactly. opening of the Ziploc, fold it over the rim of the jet boil. Uh, and then eat straight out of your jet boil. So it's it's basically your Ziploc is lining the jet boil, if you will. Yeah, the only downside, sometimes I, you know, during while the dinner's cooking, I'll have uh, apple cider or something like that. So I do lose my jet boil for that period of time, which, uh, you know, depending on the hunt, could be a deal. So, But if that's something I want, then I'll just take, uh, take my, um, you know, put the Ziploc bag. And you always just want to put it so it cooks faster and better you just put it inside something. So I'll, you know, put the bag, make sure nothing's leaking, obviously, and then kind of tuck it into my sleeping bag or tuck it into my puffy jacket or something that's just adding insulation and helping to keep it nice and warm and cook faster. 
All right. Another question came through. This guy says, I'm going to Alaska in August to film my good buddy on his first ever doll sheep hunt. It will be an outfitted hunt. And he goes on to say, I am from Oklahoma and I'm looking for some training tips on what I can do here at home to prepare myself for that terrain. I'm thinking about taking our TP style tents and wanted to get your thoughts on that versus a freestanding style tent. I'm a long no time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a long time podcast listener and proud owner of an exo pack. Oh, awesome. Um, I, so first things first, we do offer a free training plan through exo mountain gear. This is something we've had for years. We've not really talked about it too much recently, uh, which is a great reason to have this question and bring it up. But if you just go to exomountaingear.com forward slash train, T-R-A-I-N, and I will leave a link in the show description as well, you can get this free training program. And it is specifically designed for a guy like this who is from Oklahoma, is not in the mountains, doesn't have access to the mountains, but wants to train for the mountains. And so if you go to that page, you can not only download that plan for free, but you can hear more about it, including a previous podcast on why it's developed the way it is and what have you. Um, and I will say we've had hundreds and hundreds of guys complete it. Um, I'm not saying it's the only way to go or it's even the best thing out there, but what I will say is it's free and it's minimal equipment and it is effective. So if you want to go like hog wild and get into the gym or have a bunch of equipment or do more then that's great. But if you're looking for something very accessible yet very effective. Um, this is definitely something good to check out. So that's number one. And then, yeah, number two, Steve, I did want to talk about his shelter question. So he's saying doll sheep in Alaska, we don't know what range. And he's thinking about taking a teepee style tent. And one thing I picked up on, he says, taking our teepee style tent. So I'm assuming it's a bit bigger, meaning it's ours, him and his buddy going to share it. Mm versus a freestanding style tent. You couldn't even get through the question without saying, don't bring a TP. So <laughs> <laughs> I just had bound <laughs> very bad experiences with TPs and high wind situations, right? They're 100% dependent on very good staking to the ground. The, the, the two doll sheep hunts I've been on. Sure. There's times when you have good ground, but I'd say, more often than not on a 10 day hunt, you're going to six or seven of those nights, you're going to be in very rocky stuff. And so you, while you can still take a, you know, take a guy line and tie off to a rock, which we had to do plenty of times last year on my, my hunt, uh, you know, you, you're just not going to be, you want something that's got a little bit more structure to it, in my opinion. So we had a Hilleberg and hand, which is still technically a free or a non freestanding tent and that it requires stakes to be set up, but it only requires four, two on each end. And it's pretty easy to like pile rocks up and, and weigh those down, those corners down where a TP has got to have, you know, probably at least eight stakes, I'd say at on least. the average running yeah. around the perimeter just for the base. And then you got your guidelines on top of that. So it's, um, and they're not, they, they're, um, they're generally, you know, they're, they just have a lot of surface area, so they're going to catch a lot of wind. Uh, yeah, I'm just not a fan of them. But, um, they they have they're awesome in certain applications. I just not for a sheep hunt, in my opinion. I, I'd imagine if you go Google search, you know, images of sheep hunting, and got you're not going to see too many tents set up in the background. Um, yeah, so I would lean 
and, and you know alaska can be you could certainly take your chances with a middle of the road tent say something like a, from rei or big agnes you know those kind of three four hundred dollar tents that you know by no means cheap but not like your upper end or in my opinion you just go buy a hilleberg and be done with it uh, you know you're going to be safe when if when and if the you know 40 50 60 mile an hour winds hit you're going to be just fine because yeah you don't want to mess with your shelter out there it's just a different you know lower i've said on the podcast many times like you're coming out to idaho and you want to go elk hunting in september you could literally go to walmart and buy a hundred dollar tent because the worst case scenario a freak storm happens or it snows a foot and your tent collapses you're four hours from hiking out it's just not an option in alaska right like your your tent could be your um could be a life-saving deal and you don't want to mess with it because you know your bad weather comes in and Bad weather not only means bad weather, but it means a plane can't come get you because I can't fly in the bad weather either. So you're stuck out there even longer. Yeah. And again, this, as he said, obviously sheep for a non-resident is going to be an outfitted hunt. So, you know, always talk with those guys, not only because they're out there doing it all the time, but they're going to understand the nuances of where you're going to be, what the hunt logistics are. Like you may talk to that outfitter and he's like, yeah, bring your TP for base camp. Uh, because we're going to have that set up, but then we're going to have this ability to backpack or spike camp. And then sometimes yeah. the outfitters will provide those tents. So just, you know, reach out to him and see what they say and talk about those logistics. But yeah, I'm with you, Steve. In general, I wouldn't recommend a TP for Alaska necessarily in general. Again, there are exceptions, uh, but wouldn't yeah. also recommend it for <laughs> right. sheep hunting. It just made me think of when you guys did the, you guys wanted to come out for the caribou hunt, you and Jared, and is your, was it your first trip too, to Alaska? Uh, yeah. Yeah. The caribou. Yeah. Was. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I was like, guys, don't bring it. Don't bring it. Oh no, no, it's fine. We've been in high winds before and halfway through the trip, the thing's laying on the ground all you weighted it down the rocks and crawled in the big Hilleberg with us. Cause it was a mess. Like, um, so yeah, certainly just <laughs> not what I recommend for up there. Uh, <laughs> Going back to his training, I would say really pay attention to your feet. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing like obviously you want total body fitness and get in shape and getting the, you know, depending on where you're at, get in the best shape of your life. But really pay attention to spend. I don't know how you do it in Oklahoma. We've talked about this in the past, but you need to spend a lot of miles hiking in the exact socks insole and boots that you're going to be wearing and you gotta figure out a way to hike on uneven terrain right like it's something that i've been you know on my quest to find the right perfect boot shoe for me um so it's one thing to throw a pair on throw a 50 pound pack on and go hike a trail for four miles like pretty much anything feels pretty good and then the second i get off trail and i spend you know, hike four miles, side hilling, uphill, downhill, like never once is the ground underneath you completely flat, then that that's where you quickly start to see what works and doesn't work. So on a, I've been on the two doll sheep hunts I've been on, we've had, you know, the first one, our guide had his feet just completely blow up, you know, massive silver dollar size blisters really hampered him. Um, the second trip, uh, when we got back to base camp, there's a couple guys, Tyler's feet were great. My feet were great. But when we got back to bas- base camp, met up with some other hunters that had just gotten out too. They had some pretty messed up feet. Um, it's just something that you can't, 
I don't know exactly how you do it in Oklahoma, man. Like I said, the, I don't know if our canals, we've talked about this in the past, are canals frequent around there, like concrete canals? Yeah. Water I mean, around, or does that not really exist? I'm not super familiar with Oklahoma. I've been through it, mm-hmm. but I've not spent much time in Oklahoma. And I know there's variation on, you know, you're Southern Oklahoma, like Texas border country, or, you know, you further, mm-hmm. there are some quote unquote mountain, mountain esque parts of oklahoma ish on the like eastern side towards arkansas so there is variability one thing i i don't know that i've thought of this before steve but as i was thinking because i knew your your head was going to go to canals i also had the thought of in some areas of the south um and midwest you'll run into like very rocky creeks Mm -hmm. that some of them in summer can also be quite dry and so it may sound really weird, but like hiking, hiking through, you're not going to get elevation, but hiking through a somewhat dry or maybe totally dry seasonal rocky creek is just going to give you a lot of instability and um, work out all of that stepping on odd surfaces, ankles moving, foot shifting and within the boot type situation of Yes, it's not elevation. It's not training your body in the same way a mountain would, but from a foot specific perspective, um, it's going to be very uneven and I think be a pretty good simulation for kind of like side hilling and, you know, just kind of seeing like even maybe it's not even testing your boot, but like what we've talked about of testing your sock combination and seeing how much movement you get and slip and different things like that. Um, I just had that thought of like hiking a super loose, rocky creek. Yeah. So yeah, it's a really good idea. It basically anything you can do to just get on uneven terrain where every step is, you know, the, your ankles rolling left, your ankles rolling right, your forward, your back. Uh, you just do that for, you know, a couple of days a week and do it for, you know, go hike at least four miles. Uh, cause that's, you know, it's going to be what's necessary to really it's, you know, if you got a new boot to break it in and also find out if it's going to work for you. Cause you just don't, like I said, hiking flat trail and putting your boots on and you get Joe, go hike the treadmill or go hike around your neighborhood. That's going to give you a, maybe a 10% indication of what, what's actually going to happen when you're out there in the mountains. Yeah. That's uh, this to this guy. Let us know how the sheep hunt goes, man. It'd be fun to hear about it. There's like yeah. two buddies going, one's the hunter, one's just filming and there to enjoy the experience. I mean, that's the stuff dreams are made of there. That's awesome. Uh, we had a listener reach out after our episode with Hornady uh, that was called Backwards Thinking and Ballistics. Um, and again, I'll leave a link to the show in the show description for that specific episode. It was a fun one. Um, but this guy also does some rifle building, things like that. And he shared a tool that he had developed, an online tool that's free just to go plug some numbers in. Um, and it's kind of like a cartridge comparator. And I went and looked at it. It's really neat, actually. Um, you can put on some basic information. There's some optional fields where you can put in more advanced information. And the the data that it spits out will do some cartridge suggestions and comparisons uh, with some data that's pretty neat. And really, the what I liked about it was the goal is to show you for your intended target, for your intended max effective range, what are some good cartridge recommendations without automatically assuming 
bigger is always better, meaning you're trying to look for the most efficient cartridge that will get you to your end destination with the most efficiency and the, the least amount of recoil. Because um, it's easy to say, oh yeah, like a 300 Ultra Mag is going to do it. Well, of course a 300 Ultra Mag is going to do it, but you're sacrificing a bunch in terms of efficiency and recoil and all that stuff. So this is much more, I don't want to say what what can I quote unquote get away with or what's going to like be the smallest thing that's still going to be most effective, but it does favor to we want efficiency, we want shootability, we want to keep recoil to a minimum and not just automatically assume the biggest magnum is best. So again, just a link that I'm going to uh, leave in the show description to this cartridge comparator. Uh, super cool. It came from a guy who listens to the podcast. And as I played with the tool, I thought it would be uh, definitely worth sharing for guys to go check out. Did you look at it, Steve? I think I forwarded it over to you. I did look at it. I was, uh, there's a bunch going on in the office and I kind of like opened it and got distracted and went back to yeah. it and got distracted again. It, it was very cool. I mean, it's certainly right up my alley of, yeah, like, I thought of you. you know, yeah. It's exactly my thought process of, you know, my shoulder issues is what's the minimum recoil I can get by with, right? Um, and still have an effective uh, tool for killing an animal. So, again, the link in the show description, just wanted to share that as something to go check out. All right. Um, this question came up, Steve, we'll wrap up with this one. And it is something that I honestly had never thought of, but I think is worth talking about. And then was able to get some information from a friend that had some uh, solid recommendations. So this guy wrote in and said, over the last few years, I've come to realize that I have invested quite a bit of money into my hunting gear. And I'm currently investing even more money into some new gear for an upcoming elk hunt. I was curious to see if you guys know anything about insurance for all of your gear. Are there any insurance policies you can get in case of in case your gear gets stolen out of your truck while traveling or anything like that? If so, what is your experience and what or who would you recommend for coverage? I don't know anything about insurance for gear, Steve. I do yeah. know homeowners will cover a very, very small amount of things. Same for auto in certain circumstances, if while you're traveling, for example, but in general, standard insurance is going to be insufficient, even though there may be some very minimal coverage. You can do some like additional riders on your main insurance policies for things like gear, firearms, what have you. However, I did have a friend who was like, I think he mentioned looking at insurance for his stuff. And so I reached out and basically, um, he had two recommendations. I did some brief research on both of these recommendations and there's definitely some good feedback on them. So I share this with, I don't want to say caution, but I don't have any personal experience with either of these. This is not like an endorsement, what have you. I do know some guys who have gone down this road though and um, looked at these options that look like good options. So again, there's gonna be two links in the show description. Um, one is basically from like an, a collector company, but they do different insurance policies for a wide variety of things. Um, yes, firearms, hunting gear, optics, etc. but they also had like random, I think like you can insure, you know, like collectibles, like you have crazy expensive baseball cards or something. I don't know. The other one, um, is from a company called Eastern insurance, but they do personal policies for different things, including firearms, optics, gear, accessories. It was interesting looking at these, Steve. What I 
looked what I found in my research and from talking to a couple guys was, you know, you can cover most of these will be um, advertised for firearms specifically, but from what I've been told and what I saw, you can claim other items of value. So things like your optics, binoculars, spotting scope, et cetera, and gear at large. And most of these did cover in transit, not just in storage, meaning, you know, your home was burglarized or fire, what have you is one scenario. But the other scenario is what this guy mentioned, which was stolen in transit, whether that's out of truck, potentially lost in airlines, et cetera. And it looked like these policies also covered that. So again, I'm not making an endorsement. I will leave links to two options that seem uh, valid. And then I also want to share this to say, because we have you know thousands of people listening who may, some of which may have gone down this road. If you have any experience or um, firsthand kind of like uh, scenarios here where you've actually hopefully not, well, I don't want to say hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you haven't had to make a claim because that means something bad happens. But especially if you have had a policy like this and have gone through a claim process and have an experience to share good, bad, or otherwise, let us know because it would be good to then share that with everyone else listening. So an interesting topic that we've never talked about, but I think is definitely very relevant as guys, you know, start sitting around and counting up how much value they have in gear. Steve, mm-hmm. going back to our going back to our caribou trip in 2019, I think it was maybe Jason or Tyler. We were sitting outside the hotel, like getting ready to go to the field, and we had what I guess seven guys probably with all of our gear for a a drop camp hunt for a week. And one of those guys was like, "How much gear do you think we're sitting on? Like between clothes and <laughs> optics and rifles? Seven dudes like fully kitted out. It was like." tens of thousands of dollars just like sitting in the parking lot right then yeah yeah absolutely it, it can add up in a hurry man two grand for a pair of binos twenty five hundred dollar for a spine scope you know a grand a five grand and a rifle like yeah it's um stuff's not cheap so yeah it would be great to hear from listeners uh if you have any experience in that arena to help other listeners all right um anything else steve what's going on we didn't do anything uh exo related pack questions but what's just kind of an update for what things are looking like operationally for exo right now man yeah things are good i was we, we had the launch and it took four or five weeks from that to get really back to you know status quo and we're there finally um so that's been great we're you know back to an order comes in and it ships you know within you know we're i think we're hitting our 16 hour timeline that we held for the last three years so that's been awesome operationally things are going good we're um, you know, pack sales are slower this time of year just because it's kind of a shoulder season. Guys are already bought their pack for spring bear. And then there's just kind of this lull before it picks up for the summer. So on our end, we're just building packs, building inventory. So shops cranking. We're um, having to make some adjustments. K4s, we call it our variants, which is just simply like how many, if we were to sell, you know, within a hundred backpacks, how many of those would be green 5000s and coyote 3600s right like belt sizes frame heights all that stuff and we've been just kind of fine tuning that as we go along here as sales as we sell more and more k4 packs so that by the time as we're building this inventory when summer hits and peak season hits and gets really busy again that everything's kind of meshing right like that we have everything in stock that we need and 
so far so good man everything's going great and just cruising along uh you and i i've got a handful of videos i've just been needing to get done but just keep kind of like push off or um like i was gonna do them last week and then justin wanted to go bear hunting for a couple days like all right we'll do them you know push them off till this week so uh (laughs) i know i need to do the how to cut the frame one and i was gonna do the technique on there's a simple technique to make getting the nalgene in and out of the nalgene pocket really easy uh, just a few things like that and then when you come out next week on the bear hunt we're gonna certainly do a bunch of videos we'll we'll add the jet boil one to it there you go but uh some more gear specific ones on k4 and loading the pack and you know not not much has changed from k3 videos but it's still nice just to have kind of fresh updated ones with with k4 in there yeah cool well guys if you have uh any questions on that stuff as we always say um, if it's pack related if it's gear related or for the podcast just reach out anytime uh we're happy to help and uh if you have any ideas for like videos of like hey you guys should do this and it's something that you're not seeing already out there on our youtube channel which does have a bunch of new videos um then let us know man we'll get that shot for you guys and want to make sure that we're putting out and kind of answering the questions that you guys have so whether that's a podcast or video or what have you just reach out let us know send an email to podcast at exomountgear.com or you can also look for the link in the show description that says leave us a message and you can use whatever device you're on now to leave us an audio message finally if you haven't yet hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically and we'll talk to you soon